Welcome everybody back to Soul Focus Radio, the Soul Focus Podcast. I'm here with my brother M. What's happening, y'all? I want to thank you for tuning into our podcast again, for all of you around the world from every nook and corner. Uh, we want to thank you for tuning in, and we we because we are definitely wanting to support you in your growth and development to bring soul happiness into your world, into your life. Beautiful, beautiful. And so for our listeners, if you're just joining us on this podcast, uh, one of the things we've been covering is kind of, you know really looking at the history of the Soul Focus Group, and specifically focusing on the journey of our CEO, uh, Brother Mahdi, um, as his life has been so foundational to both the, the, the development of the Soul Focus Group as well as bringing the Soul Focus uh, technology or Soul Focus psychology to the world. And if you haven't, uh, if you're just joining us now, highly encourage you to go back and listen to the previous podcast because there's a lot of uh, wealth of information there. One of the things we want to do in this podcast is, you know, we've, we've gone through the journey, uh, uh, in terms of your life coaching, and started to allude, the first time I met you was in New Orleans at a national gathering of the People's Institute, where you were doing, uh, bringing the art of life recycling to uh, to uh, the team of us. You know, there's probably about 60, 70 of us in this room at the Kuji Center. Um, and I was impressed by what you did then. And, you know, I definitely connected with you at different trainings. But I, I really want to hear about your entree into anti-racist work and what the analysis of the People's Institute has meant to your life and your development and how that contributes to what we're doing with the Soul Focus Group as well. And so pass it over to you, bro. Well, thank you for that question. First, I want to say that my, intro, my entree into the anti-racist social justice movement did not happen when I came in contact with the People's Institute. It happened when I was in college when uh, four black uh, females were beat up by some, uh, guys in a white fraternity. Uh, give the one black girl a black eye, I think broke another one's arm, and they would not put the guys, they would not throw the guys out of school who were drunk and did this when they walked through the student union. And so because they wouldn't throw them out of school, be, they, riots took place, marching and protesting. I organized the guys on the football team to stand up against it. Uh, I paid a heavy price for it, but that's why I got introduced to the social justice movement, the idea of being in the in the trenches fighting for justice for black women and black women who were beat up. And even though I was threatened with losing my opportunity to play pro ball by my by the head coach, I still stood up for what was right because he one of the things he said to us, he said he didn't want us, he didn't want nobody on the team to get involved with this. And I remember standing up at the captain's meeting and I was one of the captains on the team. And I said to him, I said, you know, there's no way in the world I cannot get involved with this. My mother is a black woman. And I said, you know, I see my mother in these women and there's no way I could I could sit by and watch them be abused and not take up arms or not take up for them. And he says mm -hmm. to me, he says, well, Burke, you do what you think is right. And when the time comes, I'll do what I think is right. I had no idea what that meant. But what that meant it was him blackballing me, me and most a lot of other ones who were involved in the organizing process and the protesting process. So mm -hmm. that's where I, that's where I got my feet wet. And that would begin my journey of certain degree of awareness of waking up to the world around us, the truth about the world around us. Because growing up in a little country town called Abbeville, Louisiana, I did not have a big lens, mm -hmm. you know. And so right. I started waking up when I got to college after this event happened. You know, I started waking up to social justice. But fast forward, I moved to New Orleans after I graduated. 
and uh, I'm working at the Kuja Center. I have my own company, and I'm work, you know, I'm working full time, but I got my company that I'm working on the side, building my company. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at the Kuja Center, Ronald Chisholm, who is the co-founder of the People's Institute, what we call the Godfather of anti-racist movement. I worked under his wife, who was the director of the Kuja Center, and I was the program coordinator. And she said to me that she said, if you're going to be working in this community at the St. Thomas uh, Irish Channel Consortium community, you need to understand about racism. And I said, I don't need to understand about racism. I'm a black man. I've been knowing about racism all my life. She said, well, you still got to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she sent me to the workshop and I didn't have the reaction that she was hoping I would have. I was so, you know, so tight and didn't want to accept what was being said. I remember when Ron <laughs> came up to me. And asked me how the workshop was after the workshop was over. I told him, I said, man, this is a bunch of bullshit. And he looked at me like, damn, what's wrong with this brother? You know, <laughs> this brother, man, this- I, I, I could see his face. <laughs> That's all. He, he didn't even say nothing. He just walked away. He was like, damn, you know, because I said it with like some with some anger. You know, man, this bunch of bullshit. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, and what the deal was was that I had suppressed so much that. What, what Ron and the People's Institute was presenting was 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 threatening uh, the the ego facade that I had built up. That it, I didn't know that I had built up. That now that I, you know I have to acknowledge this stuff, you know, because uh, I had started having a little success by being what quote unquote the special one, you uh, know, uh, and uh, you know what I'm saying the special one, the one that was being accepted in circles because I was fair skinned and because my eyes were light. So I, I started mm-hmm. to buy into that at the same mm-hmm. time, while at the same time I was still saying that I was fighting against it. Right. But I right. didn't know what I was fighting against. And so I had spiritual consciousness. I was spiritually conscious. All right. But I wasn't socially <laughs> conscious. And because I wasn't socially conscious, my spiritual consciousness could not be as effective as it can, could be because I was missing something. I was missing that social consciousness. Just like there's a lot of people who are socially conscious but don't have any spiritual consciousness. Right. And the two have to come together because if they don't come together, then you don't get the real integration, you know? So right. fast forward, I develop a relationship with Ron because Jerry, his wife, makes me go to another workshop. And I told her, I said, I didn't want to go. She says, if you're going to work here, you got to go again. She said, because there's something, <laughs> something wrong with you if you didn't get nothing from that. So when I went the second time, it, it started to sink in. So I ended up going like to four workshops and it finally started sinking in. I realized I had a lot of work to do on a social level that also connected to the spiritual level that was ignored because I was like taking a spiritual approach without understanding that there are there are barriers that have been set up in society, physical barriers, mental barriers that you need to understand to be able to navigate, not just around, but to navigate through in order to be effective in this world. And if right. you ignore those things, you pay the price for ignoring them. And the, the price you pay is your sanity. Because mm-hmm. then you, because when, when the things don't work for you like, like it worked for everybody else, you think there's something wrong with you. And the reality yeah. is it's not something wrong with you. It's something wrong with the way this system has been set up. It's a hierarchical yeah. system yeah. set up to benefit one group over all the rest. Mm-hmm. So after that, me and Ron started developing a relationship and Ron heard about me, my art of life recycling, right, program. And he, right. Asked, me to, he asked me to come into the Institute and do a seminar for, for the staff. And they, at that time, <laughs> they, were on, they were on Dowman Road, right? Mm-hmm. I, think it was, I think it was Dowman, yeah, out in New Orleans East, for those of you mm-hmm. who are listening who are from New Orleans. So I, I went out there and I did the seminar. It was, a, you know, 
me and my ex-wife did it together, Stephanie Jupiter, me and Stephanie did it. And uh, we felt good about it. So a week, a week went by and Ron called me up on the phone and Ron said, you know, I need you to come by the office as soon as you can. So I came, I came, I went to the office, I sat down in Ron's office and I was like, so I asked, so I asked him, I said, well, so Ron, uh, you know, how did the workshop go? And he said, well, you know, my D, you know, they said they hated it. <laughs> I was like, huh? He said, yeah, they, they thought it was a total waste of time. Oh. I was like, oh, wow. I felt, I was, I felt, I felt ashamed. I felt like I had let him down. I was like, dog. I, so I, I was just so apologetic. And in that moment, Ron says to me, he says, and you know what? Because of that, I want to sign you to a two-year contract, and I want you to implement, you know, the art of life recycling into the institute, and mm-hmm. I want you to learn the undoing racism workshop so you can implement some of that into that too. And I was like, wait a minute, hold up, right? Hold up, that don't make any sense. You just <laughs> told me that they say they hated it, and that you know it's a waste of time. He so Ron then says, you know, from my experience in the social justice community. People who are who are who are after justice who have not been, not gotten justice, he says, what is good for them they usually don't like. Uh huh. He says, based upon the pathology that has been developed in the community, the things that are good for us, he says, we usually push it away, just like a child not wanting to eat their vegetables. So he True. says, because they reacted that way to what I was presenting, he knew they needed it. Mm-hmm. Then he goes on to tell me, he says, look, he says, the social justice community and the anti-racism community is a very unhappy community. And he says, I don't know how to bring happiness to it. I don't know how to how to bring a a new level to it. He says, but I think you do. And if you don't, you're going to figure it out. Hmm. So what essentially Hmm. what what, what I what my interpretation of what Ron was telling me is that, you know, I need to figure out how to bring happiness to the movement how to bring happiness to a movement that people were always fighting, always in conflict, and never really appreciating themselves, what they're accomplishing and living their life. So the, one of the mm-hmm. most radical mm-hmm. things that people can do is to actually start, start taking care of yourself, start having, start putting yourself, making yourself a priority, especially in the social justice community, anti-racist community. So essentially, Ron was, was, was giving me the responsibility or sort of like uh, the commissioning me to bring happiness, soul happiness is what I call it, to the social justice anti-racist movement. And at the time I didn't I didn't have the answers. So but for the 20 years that would from that point, I would be studying the habits of people in anti-racist social justice community, studying the habits, studying what I saw them go toward and turn around away from on a regular basis. And it would then help to create what we have now, which is soul focused psychology, a completely different way of thinking that will bring out or bring us to soul happiness, whereas we have been running off of ego-focused psychology, because that's what I saw in, among, the, among the leaders and the followers in the anti-racist social justice community, a total, almost complete and total ego-focused psychology running the show. Mm. So, so you, you just brought up a whole bunch of questions. And one of the things you brought, you just said was, you, you alluded to self-care. And a lot of people in the movement nowadays talk about self-care, but by by and large, people are talking about maybe getting a massage, you right? Know, maybe right. Making right. sure you you know take time off to you know go for walks and all that. I'm not not minimizing any of that. All that's important, you know, working out, meditation, all that's really good. But I speculate that you have a deeper meaning when you say taking care of yourself. Definitely, because remember, health originates from the internal, not external. 
there's no health external. All the health is internal. And that health is that health is, is established or reestablished from balance. So if we've been living our life being ego focused all these years, we are so off balance. And the, and the only way to restore that balance is start becoming honest with ourselves, being uh, vulnerable with ourselves and really putting our ego in the right place. Our ego has been running the show. So what that means is that we've been literally living our lives more concerned about what people think about us than what we feel or more concerned about what we think about ourselves. We've been more concerned about how we look than how we feel, more concerned about being right than getting the results and outcomes we want, more concerned about pointing out what's wrong than looking for what's right and more and more committed to avoiding responsibility than accepting it. So you would see in the social justice community, we're good at talk. We're good about talking about the problem. We talk about the problem all damn day. But let, let somebody ask for a solution and everybody get quiet. And then if you ask for the solution too often, we're going to get mad at you and tell you, you know, it's too it's premature for you to be asking for a solution because you don't know the problem well enough. No, what we uh -huh. are saying is that we don't have no fucking solutions. Instead of admitting that we don't have no solutions, we double down on it, which means that we double down in our ego. We just go deeper into our ego rather than saying, look, we don't have the answers right now. However, now that you've asked that question, we're going to start working on it. You know, I remember as we, we as I would go through the social justice and go through the community and start asking for what was the vision. Nobody had a vision. I said, well, what are we working for? We don't have a vision of the world, how the world looks without racism. What are we working on? If we don't have a we don't have a vision of how the world looks with people uh, in the social justice community being happy and having soul happiness for real. If we don't have that vision, what are we working for? Right. Right. You know, right. That's almost, I mean, happiness, the, the notion of happiness, you know, I know from the, the 25 some years that I was really longer than that, that I've been involved in the social change movement. Happiness was never put on the table. It was almost like you were being indulgent. You know, that was some bourgeoisie right. type of pursuit. Like, who are you to be happy if somebody else ain't got enough food to eat or somebody's locked up right. in prison? Right. Who are you to be happy? And that's right. such a, I mean, as you know, such a sick, sick way of thinking. Um, happiness. Madi. Talk more about that in the context of the movement. Bro. Well, happiness is one of the most underrated uh, uh, states that you could be in because the world, you know, the ego don't want you there because when you're there, ego can't be there. Ego cannot exist in soul happiness. And if you think of happiness as you being operating in a state of wholeness where you know you whole, it's not, you're not even questioning it. And because you know you're whole, you know you're complete, and you're operating from a place of wholeness and completeness, you have nothing to prove to anybody else. You're showing up full, right? That's why you don't see nobody happy trying to kill nobody. You don't see nobody happy right. trying to blow up no buildings. <laughs> you don't see yeah. nobody happy trying to work to stop somebody else from being happy. The right. people that are doing all that are people that are hurt, that are angry, depressed, that are people who are away from happiness. So we need to put we need to put a priority and focusing on happiness. And we can't keep saying when we get the school system together, then we're going to be happy. When uh -huh. we get the hospitals together, then we're going to be happy. When we transform institutions and systems, regardless of the penal system, whatever, then we're going to be happy. Because, see, every time we put conditions on when we're going to be happy, then what ego does is move the move the goalposts, keep moving the goalposts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we always never looking be for what's, never be happy. We're always looking for the next thing. When I get this money, when I get this degree. When I get married, then I'm going to be. 
And the reality is you got to make happiness a priority now. It means you got you to make achieving it and reaching it and then sustaining it and being in it consistently as a state of, as a state of mind and a state of being more than anything. You got to make it a reality because if you do, and then imagine now operating from the place of happiness where you are in harmony or in alignment with your own natural expression. You're not, you're not trying to alter none of it. You're not trying to suppress any of it. You are in total harmony with your natural expression and happiness abounds in you when you are there, right? The, whole, the world looks completely different than how it looks when we hurt, sad, and as we say, hurt people hurt people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but yeah. you don't, you know, happy, you don't ever hear happy people hurt people. <laughs> right, right. You know, right. Happy right. people don't give a damn about people. You don't ever hear that. Right. You know, that's right. That's right. And, you know, as, you, as you're speaking right now, one of the things that maybe we can close this session with you responding to this is one of the things um, that has stayed with me from our coaching. It was a, a teaching from your teacher um, where your teacher essentially said, I might not say this exactly perfect, but the sentiment will be there. There will come a time in your life where you will have to move your life without an enemy. And in the social yeah. justice movement, we're so conditioned to having enemies, 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 and really wow. understanding that God doesn't have enemies. Right? Wow. That's a, wow. That's a construct the ego and that's always stayed with me and that's that that teaching is foundational to my my journey and if right. you can just speak on that because I, I want the listeners to really understand that as well thank you for reminding me about that because that you know he taught us so much but that was like a one of a very very profound thing because we were all sitting around the table for, at class and you know he was saying he says in the future uh the problem is not going to be an enemy the problem is not going to be not having an enemy See, right now, it looks like we have an enemy. You know, maybe it's the exactly. Ku Klux Klan. Maybe it's the Aryan Nation. Donald Trump. Yeah, they, they, they are, we see them as the enemy, and we get riled up. And, but if we don't have an enemy, we don't do shit. Right. So, like, we've become addicted to having enemies, to, be, have, to have someone to point to as someone that's opposing us. And the reality is God has no partners, no rivals, and no associates. God has no enemy, you know? Uh, so and why is that important? It's important because when you need an enemy to move, when you when when there's no enemy, you don't move at all. So then, so the, you you remove the concept of an enemy, remove the idea of someone opposing you, and all you have is you being able to. You got to figure out how do I move myself? How do I get myself to do what I want myself to do when I want myself to do it? The only way to do that is you got to you got to get closer to you. You got to start understanding you better. You got to start remembering who you are, so you can know how to drive you from point A to point B without having an external force to drive you. There's a there's a, a point in the movie in The Matrix, for those of you who have seen The Matrix, when Neo first comes out of The Matrix and he's he's hooked up to all these wires and stuff while he's laying on the table, and a question is asked about why does he have all those those things hooked up to him? When he, he asks Morpheus, why you, why don't I have all this stuff plugged up into me? And Morpheus says to him, because you never use your muscles in your life. You have atrophy. Then he asked, why does my eyes hurt so much? He said, because you never saw, you never, you never looked through them before yourself. And what is sim symbolic of, we have been doing so much as a result of us having enemies that is the enemy, the quote unquote, has been moving our body. So we've been in reaction to the enemy, moving our muscles, we'll be seeing ourselves through the eyes of the enemy and, you know, what we call the enemy. Now you remove that away. And guess what? We don't even know how to move our own muscles. We don't even know how to get out. Let's say our muscles, not just in our body, but the muscles in our community. 
We don't even know how to move right. to our own community in the direction that we want our community to go in for our own benefit. We don't even know how to right. move our own muscles on our body to help sustain our health and our strength. Why? Because we have been so focused on the enemy that we haven't gotten to know or remember who in the fuck we are. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the, 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 the thing that you must learn to use is yourself. If you don't learn to use nothing else, you better learn to use yourself. If you don't learn how to use yourself, you're going to be used by everything and everyone in this world. Because that's what we all are here for. We all are here to be used. Everything is to be used. Nothing is to be wasted. So the question is not, will you be used? The question is, will you use, will you, use you more than everybody else does? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Maldi, you're starting to really get into the, to the social uh, consciousness and spiritual consciousness and the integration of, of the two. Um, which is, I definitely want us to continue this thread on the next podcast. Um, and also really hear you talking about power. And one of the things in our next podcast for the listeners, we will continue this journey into, you know, many of you have heard, if you've attended uh, the Gatekeepers Academy or Interrupting Racism, you maybe have heard of uh, the, my version of the history of the Soul Focus Group and how the Soul Focus Group came to life in the spirit of everything, every podcast before this we've been talking about. But on our next podcast, I'm going to be asking uh, Brother M his interpretation of the Soul Focus Group history. And we will continue talking about power, the integration of social and spiritual consciousness. We thank you for listening. As always, we love you deeply and dearly. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. Peace.